Hello and welcome to the Church of the Resurrection podcast. We are particularly fortunate to have this episode where uh, Dr. Paul Rainbow shares a teaching, an interactive teaching, so you'll hear questions being asked, but he shares a teaching on understanding and interpreting scripture. And so without further ado, we're going to jump right into that conversation. Well, it's always a joy for me to talk about the Bible way, way back when I was still even in, in junior high, yeah, growing up in Minnesota, we didn't have middle schools, we had junior high. Uh, I, would, I would sometimes notice that as the pastor was talking, a statement would come from the pulpit that didn't seem quite to match what I was looking at in my Bible. And so it's been kind of a lifelong interest of mine. How, how do you make sure that what we say to one another about what's in the Bible actually corresponds to the Bible itself, uh, which is a matter of interpretation. I, I, I didn't know way back then that it was going to lead me into the career I've had. I've been teaching at the seminary now for 31 years, 30 years in New Testament, and now I'm doing both Testaments. Uh, but this is, this is an area that's dear to my heart, Tonight I just want to make a few opening comments to stimulate our thinking and then throw it open for, for discussion, uh, whatever, whatever issue might, you might have. Because when you stop and think about it, you know, the whole church, the global church, has been working for about 2,000 years plus, uh, and, and the Jews uh, for 2,000 years before that, uh, trying to learn how to interpret the Bible uh, so th this is a project that outstrips the lifetime of any single person, uh, and there's no way we can cover the whole field uh, in just a half hour to an hour. Uh, so <laughs> so it, it, it might be best just to deal with whatever issues or points people want to raise. But just in very general terms, let's remind ourselves. I, I brought along today's collect. Uh, did, did you and did you set this up intending us to deal with with scripture on the day when we have the the Bible colic? Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, uh, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when you look at the words of that collect, we're to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest Scripture. When it says mark, of course, it's not talking about marking it with a pen. This is Elizabethan English, and it means take note of what's there. Read it. Take note of what's there, learn it, and inwardly digest it so that God's Word becomes part of us. So uh, it's a wonderful prayer, and it's a, a very appropriate Sunday on which, therefore, to be <laughs> talking about how to interpret the Bible. Uh, but there are just a couple of verses that we should put on the table before we go further. Familiar verses, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16. I'm not even going to read the whole verse, uh, although the whole of it is good. Uh, but there's just the one phrase I want to highlight. All Scripture is God-breathed, 
theopneustos, breathed out by God, which indicates that God is the origin of it. Uh, and then a similar, but uh, a verse in Second Peter makes a little opposite point. Uh, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So human beings were moved by God to speak what we have in Scripture, and therefore we don't have the right just to impose on this book our own ideas or, or whatever thoughts we want to read out of it, uh, but we're to listen to it uh, and hear what God is saying. On the other hand, that verse also indicates that men spoke, human beings spoke, uh, and so what we have in the Bible is God's word, but it's couched in human speech. Uh, and that means that the first rule for interpretation is that we don't foist on this book uh, some kind of idiosyncratic approach. Uh, you interpret the Bible the same way you interpret any any piece of literature. In other words, we're, we're going to pay attention to the context and we're going to ask what's the author trying to get at and who's he talking to and what's he trying to say to that person. So same way that we would read Shakespeare or that we would read Plato or, or any, any other literature that's worth reading, we're going to apply those same uh, sort of basic human principles to the interpretation of Scripture in the confidence that once we've identified the truth about all those things, the end result is going to be the Word of God speaking to us. Uh, so that's, that's the general framework uh, in which we work. I brought along this quotation from St. Augustine. St. Augustine uh, was the Bishop of Hippo in, in North Africa uh, around the year A.D. 400 or so. And as a bishop, he had to deal with heresies. And he said, heresies uh, have not sprung up except when good scriptures are not rightly understood. And when that in them which is not rightly understood is rashly and boldly asserted. So heresies spring when, you know, there's nothing wrong with the way God stated things. It's, it's clear enough. But... As human beings, we bring our bent minds and our bent hearts uh, to bear on the reading of Scripture. Uh, and so good Scriptures get uh, not rightly understood, uh, and then we become dogmatic about what we've misunderstood. Uh, and this is the origin of heresies, uh, uh, which just means, you know, as we read the Bible, we should try to be conscious, who am I as a human being? And... Uh, what what might there be in me uh, that would threaten to distort uh, or misunderstand what God is trying to say? And uh, on reflection, there are all kinds of things that might come to the surface. <laughs> yeah. uh, just going back to my junior high days, uh, we had a youth pastor who gave what I thought was an excellent suggestion, uh, and I've, I've heard it from other people since that time. Uh, number one, uh, you have to interpret the parts of the Bible in the light of the whole. And so there's no substitute. If you want to be an expert interpreter of Scripture, you have to 
familiarize yourself with the whole of the Bible so that when there's a, a problem in this place, you can go over to that place and say, well, that's probably going to shed light uh, on, on the obscurity that I see here. Now, scripture is its own best interpreter, as Martin Luther said, so the more of it you know, uh, the more uh, the more confident you can be about the conclusions you draw. Uh, but the suggestion then was, if you're reading through the Bible, you set yourself to read through, and you come to something you don't understand. Uh, this, uh, what our youth pastor told us is, don't stop and try to figure it out. Just make a mental note, there was a problem at that point, and move on and, and learn what you can understand. And then maybe the next time you go through, you will have found something somewhere else uh, and, and that problem gets resolved. And maybe not. Uh, maybe it's, a, it's the kind of a problem that's going to require some, some special information about ancient culture or uh, about the meanings of, of Greek and Hebrew words. So sooner or later, you might have to, might have to, have to get some expert help. Uh, but just repeated rereading of the whole of the Bible, not stopping because you don't understand something, but moving on, uh, that's a great approach. Uh, okay, uh, another, another uh, important perspective is that very rarely does the Bible just kind of come out straight with a general truth. Uh, usually, when we read the Bible, uh, we have to be aware we're reading somebody else's mail. I mean, it, it wasn't written to us. In a sense, it was. I mean, the, the passage we saw, we had read from Romans 15, said that the scriptures were written for our instruction. So Paul is saying, we living today can read our Old Testament. That was the Bible for him. He didn't have a New Testament yet. Uh, so today we can read this past stuff because it was meant for our instruction. But uh, it, it's not just that simple. Uh, because you know what Moses had to say, he was saying to Israel in about 1450 B.C. So yes, we can learn from it. It has a message for us. But he didn't write it to us. And he didn't write it in our language or in our categories of thought. So the ground rule is you have to understand what it meant before you can understand what it means. Uh, it meant something to them first, uh, and that might be a little bit different from what we would take out of it uh, on a first reading. Uh, so understand what it meant, uh, and it might require a little bit of you know mental exercise, uh, imagining. Who are the Corinthians? Why does Paul say this particular thing to them? What were they struggling with? Uh, have to have to try to reconstruct uh, the ancient rhetorical situation uh, and, and, and try to be as precise as we can in understanding what he was trying to say to them before we can extract some kind of a general principle that's going to apply to us. Uh, and then the final ground rule uh, is that we read the Bible in community. Uh, not, not just me and God, but uh, others have read this too, 
and and I can only be confident that I've understood it when what I see is something that others see as well. Uh, and especially, you know, if you throw the door wide open, uh, if there's something in the Bible that all Christians of all times and all places uh, have found there, uh, that's where we can be dogmatic, like the doctrine of the Trinity, which is, you know, the the church had to had to argue over that. There was this heresy and there was that heresy falling off the fence in both directions for hundreds of years. But finally, uh, Council of Nicaea 325 came up with this definition. We believe there's only one God, but that one God exists in the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And once, once that was formulated, the whole church chimed in and said, man, I see that too. Uh, that's just as clear as can be. And so there isn't any major branch of the church, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, all the Protestant uh, denominations. There isn't any major branch of the church that has any doubt uh, about the doctrine of the Trinity. And so when you get something like that, uh, you can be confident that is truth. Uh, we've, we've interpreted it rightly. Uh, on the other hand, there are some questions that... Christians are still talking about amongst themselves. One came up uh, this morning after the service. You know, uh, Aletheia was was baptized at the age of eight, but what about baptizing a baby? Well, now there is one little sector of the church, namely the Baptists and others like the Baptists, uh, who have severe doubts about whether we should baptize infants. So, you know, if if I were a Baptist. Uh, taking this principle, uh, there, there's nothing wrong with saying, here's what I really think I see in the Bible. I really think the majority of the church is wrong about that. The Baptist can, can legitimately uh, make that kind of a statement um, and, and can invite others. Don't you see uh, what I see here? That, that in, in the New Testament, baptism and faith are always connected and we don't have any examples uh, of babies getting baptized in the New Testament. So don't you agree with me? Well, the rest of the church looks and says, no, we don't agree with that. Uh, and so at that point, then the Baptist start, start, has to eat some humble pie and has to say, this is our position and this is what we think we can offer as a distinctive to the rest of the church. But until the rest of the church comes to see it, I maybe shouldn't be absolutely dogmatic about this. I think I see it, but uh, not everybody does. In fact, I'm a minority voice, and so uh, I'll just continue to argue my point and invite others to see what I see, but until I do, I uh, can't be absolutely dogmatic about that. Uh, that. That's how this principle works. So we read the Bible in community with others seeking consensus. Well, what issues do you want to talk about? I have a question about that. Just right off of that. Because <laughs> I grew up Baptist. Yeah. And we were not in the habit of eating humble pie. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, but, but I think I appreciate what you said so far. Uh, seems like it's also the responsibility of the church to continue to receive the Baptists as our brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. while they say we think they're wrong about this. Mm -hmm. um, at what point, when there is a minor dissent, 
that goes that says that's saying the majority of the church is wrong about this. Does the rest of the church say to them, "You are out of bounds"? Mm-hmm. Like you are saying, you are holding. Because as an Anglican, I can look at the Baptist and say I disagree with you, but I believe that you are a fellow brother or sister. Mm-hmm. At what point, on biblical authority, do you say you are? I can no longer receive you. Uh, is there? Do you have any wisdom to speak to that? Well, if there's a if there's a situation where everybody has sat down at the table together, I'm thinking, you know, Acts 15, where where the big issue was. Here, here's the church up in Antioch. Majority of them are Gentile believers. A few of them are Jewish. And some of them, some of those Jewish ones are actually converted Pharisees, and so they're arguing the Gentiles need to get circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses if they want to be sure they're going to be saved. Uh, so what did they do? They, they took the question to Jerusalem. They got the apostles and the elders all to sit down at the, at the, at the same table, including that party, the Pharisee party, uh, and they went around and each one made a speech so that everybody heard everybody else uh, and, and what was the concern nearest their heart. And at the end, James proposes a kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting uh, proposal he made. We're, we're not going to make the Gentiles keep all 613 commandments of the Torah, but there are four things on which our Jewish Brothers and sisters are especially sensitive. Four mitzvot, four commandments of the Torah. A couple of them are moral, like not committing fornication, but a couple of them have to do with, you know, not eating blood or not eating what's been strangled. We'll ask the Gentiles to do those things just so that we can preserve unity in the church. And, and when James proposed that, everybody saw the wisdom of it. And so at that point, when the church has had the discussion, roundtable discussion, and a proposal has been made, and virtually everybody has uh, has come into consensus, and and you know Paul and Barnabas and Silas uh, are appointed then to take that decree and and start distributing it among the churches where this had been an issue. Uh, if if there had been a Pharisee who continued to say, we still think you need to get circumcised. To be saved. That's the point at which the church can say, we decided this. You're, you're outside the pale now. So, but until that roundtable discussion has taken place, and this, this, is, this is, you know, one of the, uh, the tragedies of the Reformation era uh, in Europe. Uh, Catholic bishops, uh, you know, took umbrage at some of the things that Martin Luther was saying. Uh, but they never got the Protestants together with the Catholic bishops at the same table to hash it out. It, it was just a matter of one side saying, you're heretics, and the other side saying, no, you're the heretics, and they split because they never sat down together. There was Martin Luther even called for a, a universal council of the church, and it never came, and so the church remained split. Yeah, that was an even older split, although it wasn't over doctrinal issues for the most part. Split between the East and the West had more to do with personality conflicts. 
Well, there, there are about three major interpretations of what baptism is, is all about. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's the sacramental interpretation that someone who goes through baptism gets regenerated. Uh, some of the language in the Anglican prayer book uh, kind of reflects that, that point of view. And then there's, on the other side, there's the baptistic view that you get saved before you get baptized and your baptism is just your public profession of faith. And then in between, there's the reformed idea that when we baptize a baby, we're making them a child of the covenant, meaning not that they're necessarily saved, but we're bringing them within, uh, within a sphere in the church where they're going to be exposed to the Word of God uh, and to all the helps and graces that God gives in the context of the church to bring them to faith. So they're, they're not like an outsider, but they're not like a Christian either. They're, they're kind of in between. Uh, so th those are the three main options uh, on baptism. Well, that's a, that's a great example of how we have to take a given verse in the context of the whole of biblical teaching on a, on a given subject. So, yes, Jesus does say in the Sermon on the Mount, someone strikes you on one cheek, go ahead and meekly turn to them the other cheek. Uh, where would we be, however, 
uh, if an entire nation were to behave that way? Where would we be uh, if, if Britain and France uh, had behaved that way toward, toward Adolf Hitler uh, in the 1940s? Uh, we, we, we'd all be slaves uh, of the Nazis. Um, so what, what Jesus is talking about there is um, lots of biblical commentators uh, have made the observation that the Sermon on the Mount at that point is more about personal ethics uh, than it is about how nations and states should behave. Uh, moreover, you know, if, if I'm walking down the street uh, and, and you know, on a dark night and, and two men jump out at us and uh, they think they're going to rape my wife, am I just going to let them get away with that? Uh, is, is that what Jesus is talking about? Or should we understand that Jesus is preaching, he's speaking in homiletic fashion, he's trying to illustrate what kind of people we're supposed to be. Uh, as human beings, it's natural to us to flash back and take vengeance uh, when someone takes advantage of us. And Jesus is saying, don't be so quick. Uh, maybe it's better to be taken advantage of uh, you know, within appropriate limits uh, than just to be a mean person and, and, and get your own back every time uh, every time you're on the receiving end uh, of mistreatment. Uh, and, and maybe we shouldn't take that saying about turning the other cheek and raise it up and make a kind of ethical maxim out of it uh, such that, you know, every time somebody slaps me on the cheek, I have to let them do it again. Uh, maybe we have to discern the situation uh, in which it is appropriate to act that way and, 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 and the situation when it isn't. Uh, so uh, looking elsewhere in the Bible, uh, God, God is anti-violence. Well, can, can we make that statement if we, if we look at the book of Revelation uh, and, and we see how uh, the dragon and the beast uh, are going to be treated at the end of time uh, when God finally stands up to establish his, his eternal kingdom. He, he's going to wipe this world clean of injustice. Uh, and that means there might have to be uh, some severe treatment uh, of those wicked uh, who remain impenitent to the very end. Uh, and so just to make a general statement and say God is anti-violence might, might go beyond the bounds of, you know, if, if we're going to read the, the whole Bible and everything that the Bible has to say about the nature of God, uh, we have to allow that there has to be judgment uh, in, in cases where, where human beings uh, have been offered again and again the opportunity to repent uh, and have not uh, risen to that opportunity. Uh, and so, you know, in the in, you're, you're troubled by the imprecatory psalm, Psalm 139. I hate them with perfect hatred; they have become my enemies. Uh, I, I'd suggest, you know, in, interpret those verses in the light of biblical teaching about judgment uh, at the end of time. Uh, the the psalmist is not thinking of his enemy. Uh, who, who's mistreating him right now. He's not thinking of his enemy as a person who's open to being converted. 
Uh, he's, he's thinking of his enemy as someone who has probably been an enemy, not just of himself, but an enemy of God for a long time. Uh, and, and it has shown that he's only getting harder and only getting harder. Uh, and so in that context, the prayer would be, uh, you know, and, and the psalmist doesn't, doesn't uh, make explicit every qualification or, uh, or, or every proviso, but provided that, the, provided that my enemy continues to be who he is uh, and doesn't come to repentance, then God, would you clean the world of that person? That, that's a very Enemy. biblical prayer. Uh, and I think, uh, I think it should give us confidence uh, and, and, and it's, it's, it's encouraging to us as believers to know that God will do that. He's not going to let wickedness flourish uh, forever. It has a limit. I don't know if that helps at all with the problem of the, the imprecatory psalms. But something to something to put in the pot and let it percolate a little bit anyway. And in fact, the reason that we can forgive great wrongs is that God will come with justice. Right. Paul Paul says Paul even quotes you know Romans 12 where he's telling us be peace, be at peace with everyone that you can, uh, because God has said, I will avenge. Vengeance is mine, yeah. says the Lord. He quotes from the Old Testament. So that's. That's the basis on which we can leave justice to God and not not step in and take justice for ourselves. That's a great question by Kathy. If I could follow up with a more specific example. Um, Billy uh, asked me a question. He was teaching a passage, a passage uh, that I've taught on several times, or at least mentioned, of, of um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, um, and this beautiful passage of God showing his power. Um, but something that troubled Billy as he was trying to teach this passage was that it, as, as um, it, in the showdown between Elijah, the true prophet, and the prophets of a false god, God um, provided fire on the altar, proving that he is the true and living God. Um, but what followed was the slaughter of the prophets of Baal. I want, and, and he kind of was troubled by that. Um, and I wonder if you just speak to Yeah. 
but he, 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 so he never used control and coercion as the author she brought up was Jersak, and he makes a point about how God is all-powerful. Well, we said that God is all-powerful. We agree that God is good, and we agree that evil happens. Now, one of those three, we don't have, a, in his view, don't have a complete understanding of. And he would say that it has to do with him being all-powerful in the way that he exercises his might in this age at this time, meaning that he is all-powerful in the way that he displays his love and the way he did that on the cross. And when I realized that he doesn't use control or coercion in the way that God deals with us, I think that's one of the reasons we can all suffer and work why God? Uh, so that was part of my interpretation of this thing about Psalms. That, that flavors or colors how you would read the Old Testament. Uh, so mm-hmm. that goes a little different direction than where you were at there. And I, I don't know exactly where I'm at right now today either, just to be honest about it. Mm-hmm. Well, again, what what you're talking about there is during the time of this present evil age, so to speak. You know, the the prayer Jesus taught us to pray includes the line, your will be done, precisely because we can see that God's good will isn't being perfectly done, and we look for a time when it will be. Uh, So... So God has promised that he will assert himself and his, his perfect will will be achieved uh, in due course. But for the time being, well, we're under a, a dispensation that allows a certain amount of rope uh, to his enemies. Well, we can be confident that it will win in the end, yeah. Can you get back to Chris' question? Yeah, I'm interested too to hear how you respond. So violence in Israel. Uh, I mean, this this question is all he. Billy is raising the question uh, in relation to the Elijah incident more often, I think. Uh, a similar question comes up uh, in, when we read the book of Joshua uh, and, and the, the army of Israel is instructed, you know, you're going to take the city, uh, Jericho itself, or two or three of the others. So, so when you go in there, you're going to destroy every human being, man, woman, and child. Uh, you're going to kill every beast, and the entire uh, the entire town will be offered as as a devoted thing, a sacrifice to God. So uh, how do we cope with these kinds of massacres uh, in the Bible? Uh, the, the first, 
I think what I find decisive in dealing with those passages uh, is just realizing, I mean, this is going to take me a few minutes to, to outline, uh, realizing what Israel was. Uh, God called Abraham, and in the grand narrative, uh, in the time of Moses, God formed a people out of Abraham's offspring and made a covenant with them, and he took them in. Now, this was all according to his promise. You know, When he first came to Abraham, uh, he said, uh, you're my man, choosing you. Your offspring are going to be my people, uh, and I'm going to give them the land of Canaan, and I'm going to be their God, and they're going to be my people in that land. Uh, so the whole saga of Israel uh, through the five books of the Pentateuch and the books of Joshua and Judges and on into, into the uh, Samuel and Kings, that's all the story of God fulfilling what he had said he would do for Abraham and his offspring. So, But now that, we, now that Christ has come, we can look back and we can see that King David wasn't the Messiah although Israel maybe thought he was, nor was Solomon the Messiah, nor was any of the kings that followed in that dynasty the Messiah. And so uh, what we have in the Old Testament when Israel uh, was living in the land of Canaan in their settled existence, we have a theocracy. God is the king of that people. And it's, it's a kind of earthly picture of what the new creation is going to be, but it's it's not a perfect picture because it's still a sinful people. Uh, but nevertheless, it was meant to be a kind of object lesson uh, so that the nations of the world could look at what God did with Israel and see this is the nature of God and this is what he's going to do. Now, in that context, uh, why did he tell the Israelites to, uh, to destroy the idolatrous people who lived in the land of Canaan? Well, it's because in the age to come, there aren't going to be any idols and there aren't going to be any idolatrous people. Uh, and so that picture had to be established as perfectly as possible uh, under the imperfect conditions of, of a sinful creation. Uh, which means then that we don't take what he told the Israelites to do to the Canaanites as a model of how we should behave uh, when we maybe uh, go to war with a nation and conquer them. Uh, there are different rules, different ethics uh, that should govern our national behavior because we're not a theocracy. We're not that special people. And we're not given that picture of the new creation to the rest of the world to see. Uh, so, so there are special, uh, special conditions that, that define that picture. That, that's what I find most helpful in dealing with those Old Testament passages that could be so troubling. Not a model for us, but rather a pointer to the nature of the new creation uh, once, once the will of God is fully asserted and established. Can I ask one last question? And then you, if you could give kind of some concluding thoughts and then we could um, have a meal together and maybe continue this great discussion and... and if you appreciate this, please um, thank Paul and, and please let me know um, if you think uh, this would be a great thing to do again. I I appreciate the questions and, and the discussion that's, that's been sparked by this. Um, my question is, uh, 
assumed in, in the collect um, about reading, marking, inwardly digesting is the reliability of scripture. Um, and there are um, uh, Christian churches that teach the Bible is not the word of God, but the Bible includes words of God. And they kind of go through scripture and, and um, some are careless in the way that they choose which words um, are God's words. And they, they kind of have a canon inside a canon and say these, these words inside of scripture are authoritative. These other ones we don't like as much. Um, I wonder if, if you as a scholar who um, knows biblical texts and, and, um, and even uh, uh, manuscripts and things like that, um, why is it that you consider the Bible reliable, um, 100% reliable? And of course, we're, we're acknowledging that there are multiple genres, that like not all the scriptures can be taken ter- um, like, uh, literally if, if some scripture is, is, has a different um, uh, uh, genre. Um, mm-hmm. would, you, would you speak a little bit to the reliability, why it's reliable to, to read, mark, and inwardly digest all of scripture? Well, that takes us back to what scripture is. It's certainly the word. It's a word. God has used human beings as his mouthpieces. Uh, and, and in such a way that he doesn't, he doesn't uh, you know, biblical inspiration doesn't in any way detract from the individuality of the personality of the authors of scripture. So, so... Uh, James and Paul write differently. They they express, you know, Paul Paul says Paul says we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works of law. Uh, James says so. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I I don't think you could ever get Paul to write what James did. Uh, <laughs> That's why we chuck him in the furnace, says Martin Luther. Uh, so each has his own personality. Each has his own way that he's comfortable expressing truth. Uh, each of those guys has his own situation that he's talking into, quite different. You know, James was dealing with people who thought they can just profess faith in Jesus and, and live like the devil. And he has to make the point to them, no, you can't. Uh, the, the the gospel is a life changing thing. You're going to be a different person if you if you have a saving faith in Jesus. And and Paul is talking to a different situation altogether. Do we have to do we have do Gentiles have to convert and become Jewish to be saved? Paul says no way. Faith in Christ is enough. So you know looking at all those things. But all, all I'm saying is each each biblical writer has his own personality, his own emphases, his own uh, way of seeing the world, and, and biblical inspiration doesn't take away from any of that. Uh, what we have, nevertheless, uh, in the Bible, uh, in, in all of this diversity, this human diversity, what we have ultimately is God speaking to us. Uh, and so your question comes down basically to the question, when God speaks, can we trust what he says? Uh, and, and my answer would be, if I can't trust God, then I can't trust anybody, least of all myself. Uh, God is bedrock. So if, if you believe it is the word of God, that God's voice is the voice we hear through all the human voices that speak, 
God is, God is reliable. I, I'll stake my life on him and what he says. The two who were on their way to Emmaus. And I just like, I mean, Disney's sense of humor there is uh, priceless. Mm-hmm. Are you the only one that doesn't know what things have happened? What things? I, I mean, <laughs> and, yeah. And so then the, the, the verse, beginning with Moses and the prophet, he explains the scripture. And it wasn't until through that later when he spoke the bread that they're going, that's um, Do we have anywhere that you can point to what he said there was written down in the New Testament? I mean, it, you know, he said the scriptures concerning him. So she wants you to start with Moses and You know, the oral tradition there, I can't think that what was burned into them when he opened those scriptures to them, they, uh, they broadcast that over and over and over. So I know we've got little snippets Well, I've wondered uh, in Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost came Mm -hmm. and Peter gives this argument from Psalm 16. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's no longer on the scene. Uh, what, what they what they observe on that morning, about nine o'clock in the morning, is people speaking in tongues, Jews speaking in tongues, and there's even the joke, maybe maybe they're drunk. And Peter says, no, it's it's only nine in the morning. Obviously, they're not drunk. Now this is this is what God promised. He's poured forth His Holy Spirit. But then uh, he makes this argument. Uh, he quotes from Psalm 16. David says concerning him. And we get this little argument about the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, The the psalm says, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. And then then Peter argues. This is Acts 2.29. Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David, the author, the speaker of that psalm, that he, 
both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. But being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. Now I've wondered whether, you know, where, where did Peter get that argument from? How did he come to see Psalm 16 as talking about the resurrection of the Christ uh, rather than David just being rescued uh, from an immediate danger in his own life? I wonder whether, whether Jesus might have discussed that with those two people on the way to Emmaus and, and it strikes them, wow, what a, what a wise uh, insight into that psalm. I never, never realized the full implications of what David is saying, that, that, that the righteous man of God is not going to be handed over to corruption, but will be spared, uh, spared corruption. And Jesus literally was. So you know, that might be an example of the kind of thing that some of them learned uh, talking with him that day. Came to see that scripture in a new light in the in in view of his resurrection. Yeah, yeah. So their hearts burned within them. So I have maybe a simple confession, but I am a simpleton. Um, you would ask us the simple question. Yeah. Um, when you're out in the world and you're among people, how do you deal with the people who think it's funny that I believe there was a man in the belly of a fish? Who, who think it's funny that I, I believe there was an ark and that there was a lion's den and that these things, they, they um, because I, I think sometimes what you're running into is people who say, oh, well, he was just using that as a story to show something, which, mm-hmm. but I believe it's true, right? And, and so how do you defend yourself as a Christian out in the world when they just look at you like you're the silly, simple preacher, right? Who, oh, the, how cute is that, that you think? That guy spent the night with those lions and walked out the next day. Mm-hmm. That's so cute. Mm-hmm. But but sometimes I think we get too. We want to have an understanding, but we sometimes we get so bogged down in trying to understand it that we lose the simplicity of it too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then we do end up sounding kind of silly. So best defense for being a simpleton who's just like no, but it's in here, so it has to. Mm-hmm. Well, there are people who don't don't believe in the supernatural, uh, but God is supernatural. You know, God God is not limited by the world He made. He made the world. Uh, he constituted it as it is. So, if if He could speak in the beginning uh, and say, "Let there be light," and there's light. Uh, let there be a firmament that divides the waters above from the waters below. And, you know, if, if he's the creator, then what's going to limit him from doing whatever he pleases? Uh, now, we, we do have to discern, again, that, that's not to say that everything from Genesis to Revelation has to be taken with bare literalism. Book of Revelation in particular is apocalyptic literature, uh, and it uses lots of figures and, and you know symbols and so forth. Uh, when the psalmist says, uh, "What was it 
There was something in the psalm this morning. What psalm was it? 72? Was that, was that the one we read? not seeing it in this translation. Maybe it was a different... Yeah, it was... Yeah, I think it was 72. I think the RSV is different. Do you, do you have the bulletin or, or the? <laughs> Take it right out of the trash. In church, we read what's called the um, renewed Coverdale. Okay. The, the new Coverdale. Um, they're, they're like back in the day. Coverdale. Um, what, what year would he have lived? Well, he was pre-Reformation, wasn't he? I believe so. Um, translated the Psalms, and, and there's it's translated poetically rather than the ESV tries to translate it um, more literally. Yeah, more and, and literal. just have a faithful translation where this is poetry that's being translated. So, okay, uh, we read this line, and I puzzled over it this morning in our service. The mountains also shall bring peace, and the little hills righteousness to the people. Well. How can mountains bring peace? How can little hills bring righteousness to people? You know, if, you, if you try to take that literally, it just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. So if that's the correct translation, it, it's a little different in the RSV, but if that's the correct translation, then the mountains and the hills can't be literal mountains and hills. It must be talking about the mountains being important people, you know, the aristocracy, they'll bring peace to the nation. The little hills, those of us who are uh, of no account, uh, they'll bring righteousness to the people. Uh, you can see that it would have to be symbolic. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should, that we should be insensitive uh, to those kinds of things. Uh, and, and there, there's some debate among scholars about the book of Jonah. You know, I mean, I've, I, I've heard people who will point to this or that rare instance in history where a human being actually did get swallowed by a fish and survived for a number of hours uh, and, and, you know, had, had all kinds of acid burns when they finally got vomited out. But, you know, you can, you can argue things like that Sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. So, so things like that have happened apart from what the book of Jonah says. On the other hand, there are some biblical scholars. Uh, I think of C.S. Lewis, for example. You know, he didn't take the book of Jonah literally. He's, he, and he, he's, you know, he read a lot of literature. And he said, you just have to smell with your nose. And, and that has the smell of fiction about it. Uh, 
uh, that this is a story which becomes a kind of parable. So you'll have to make your choice. You know, do you go with the literalists or do you go with C.S. Lewis uh, on the Book of Jonah? But on the other hand, uh, clearly there are there are things like the resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is obviously, you know, the, the witnesses saw him alive. So they're, they're not talking parables now. He's alive. They met him after his crucifixion. They saw the wounds in his hands. He even invited Thomas, go ahead, stick your finger in there. Run, run your arm into my side if, if you don't believe it's me. He ate a fish so that when he vanished, they could see the plate. Fish wasn't there anymore. So, so we're we're meant to take that as something that happened, uh, and and that's because God is a supernatural being. He's the creator, and we can't we can't dictate what He will and what He won't do. So, uh, a simple faith uh, that, that is what Jesus commands. Yeah, is what Jesus, Jesus commands. Says when the children come to Him. What does he say? I'm still one of them, apparently. I'm like, oh. Jesus, Jesus says, um, you, you would know the reference of talking. Um, it says, suffer the children to come to me for faith. Mm-hmm. It's faith like these. He commands the faith of children. Not that we should seek to be simple. Right. And, and I, I hope this doesn't obscure anything, but um, the word literally is a, is a very loaded term. Um, but we also understand literally and grammatically. Um, and so we understand genre and context. And, and one, one of um, the Gospels are true historical accounts. But I don't know if you noticed an example of hyperbole today um, in, in the Gospel reading. So maybe this isn't helpful. But today it said um, that uh, John, the type of John the Baptist, and it said that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him. So, so does that mean every last person in Palestine got baptized? Probably not, but people came from all over. But like, what is yeah. the text telling to you? That people in great numbers. Right. And so this isn't meant for us to pick apart the text and say this is unreliable, but but to emphasize the fact that many, many, many were coming. We have an example of of, of exaggeration. Hyperbole and exaggeration aren't exactly synonyms, but but it's, it's close enough to, to say it's illustrating, uh, it's trying to convey an idea. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So we have to allow for language. All the ways that we use language, the Bible uses language. Mm. Uh, and the bottom line is all things are possible. True. Mm. God, God, God can do what he pleases. Yeah. And he has revealed his word to us in scripture. Yeah. And what I hear Paul saying, he hasn't said it, but if, if God, you know, when he talked about the reliability of Scripture, if God chose for this book to be handled differently, if for parts to be missing, to say we can't trust this, then we would probably have a different Bible. Mm-hmm. You even said that. <laughs> <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but um, may this discussion um, continue into the night, and um, hopefully... On many other days, um, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you, Paul, for for being willing to, t- to take questions. Yeah. Um, uh, but he is not off the clock until he leaves the property. So please uh, use this wonderful so, resource. Uh, then, then I face my wife. <laughs>
Thanks for listening. I'm glad you stuck it out, and we will see you next time.